different letters that are written by Jesus, penned by uh, John, and they were sent to seven different churches across all of Asia Minor. Now, in almost all of these letters, Jesus comes out and he tells them something that these churches are doing well. He says, hey, here's something that I have that's really good that's going on, and so I commend you for this. And almost no sooner that he commends them, that he, that he just comes and he drops the hammer on them. And he says, I have this complaint against you, right? And so we've been looking at those things, these complaints, more than anything, that Jesus has against these churches and going, that's the thing that Jesus is saying, the hashtag, not my church. That is not the church that I started. That's not what I want you to be. And then we've been going one step further, and we've been looking at something inside of these letters that Jesus has been calling these churches towards. Something that would make them and help them to be a great church. Well, um, today we're going to continue on. We've got the fourth of the letters, right? So it's the middle one out of all of them. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 18 through 29 this morning. Now, while you're flipping there, or maybe if you're um, a little bit more digitally inclined, if you're scrolling there, I want to tell you just a little bit about this city, right? Thyatira. Thyatira. So Thyatira was this um, incredibly unimportant city, right? We've gone through Ephesus, which was like this massive political center. And then we follow that up with Smyrna, if you remember how to say that one, right? We had Smyrna, and Smyrna was this incredible commercial city. And then after Smyrna, last week we had Pergamon, or Pergamos, either one of those names works for that city, and we found out that it was this massive cultural and knowledge center. And then we come down the way, a little bit south from Pergamum, to this small town of Thyatira. And it's known for almost nothing. In fact, this city sat in a valley, right? It was on the road 
It was a crossroads between Pergamum and Sardis, and as it was going back into Smyrna, it sat there at this crossroads in the midst of the valley, and it was just a spot that was where a Roman garrison set up at. That's it. In fact, this city was very difficult to defend. Because people could come and go very easily. There wasn't a hillside that they could sit up on and, and watch over and protect the city. It was not much of anything. Now, it's not the first time that we have seen um, this city in the Bible. It's actually mentioned back in Acts chapter 16. We met a lady. Her name was Lydia. Paul meets her. And Lydia is from this city. And we find out that she is a, a tradeswoman, that she is gifted in selling and making purple cloths. But other than that, this city, there's not much that's from here. But what's interesting is, is that this seemingly unimportant city has the longest of the seven letters composed to it. The longest one. And not only that, it's positioned right here in the very middle of the letters. Now in Hebrew teaching, there was, there's this thing that's called a chiastic structure. The chiasm is A, B, A, right? Or A, B, C, B, A. Or as in the case of these letters, what we see is A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And you say, well, what's important about this chiasm, this chiastic structure that you're talking about? Well, the authors would very intentionally arrange their structure in order to highlight that item that was in the middle of it. Everything would build up to this moment, crescendo into it, and it would decrescendo from this moment as well. And so here it is, we have this letter, the longest of all seven, sitting right in the very middle. And I don't find it any coincidence that this letter, this letter may have the two greatest instructions for the church. In fact, I think that there are two things, not just one thing, that Jesus says that a great church is about inside of this letter. So let's read the letter together. Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed even what you were doing at first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to, to practice sexual immorality and even to eat food that is sacrificed to idols. Listen, I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So behold, I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. And those who have committed adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. 
Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. And all of the churches will know this. They will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, those who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some of them call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only that you would hold fast to what you have until I come. And the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him will I give authority over all the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Just as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, I am. I thank you for this letter. I thank you for the richness of what it is that you shared with this church. God, I pray that it would strengthen us, that it would call us to what it means to be a great church. God, I pray that you would use it to help to give us the resolve to become who it is that you desire for us to be. More importantly than anything, Father, may we be faithful to keep the words and to do what they describe. Amen. So Jesus opens up this letter. And he does it much the same way that he's done every other letter. If you've noticed, there's a pattern that Jesus describes himself to each one of these different churches in a very particular way. And each one of those descriptions seem to me to hold some of the key to what unfolds in the rest of the letter. And so Jesus describes to, him, to them that he is like eyes like fire and feet that are furnished like brass. And these are some incredible descriptors of who he is. But I don't want you to miss the very first thing that he said, because before he said that, he said to them, these are the words of the Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God. Now, I have to be honest with you for just a second. I spent a lot of time this week chasing this rabbit, and we could spend an entire message just on this, right? But I'm going to try to unpack this real quickly for you, so if you feel like maybe we blaze through that, what's about to happen, it's okay, all right? And you can come ask me questions about it later, or you can go chase this rabbit on your own this week. But here's one of the things that I learned. This is the only place in the entire book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. I'm going to take it one step further. This is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus specifically calls himself the Son of God. And you say, well, wait, Charles, did he never say that he was the Son of God? No, no. In the Gospels, there, there are multiple times where other people acknowledged him as the Son of God, as the Messiah. In fact, when we started this series, we started with Matthew chapter 16, where Peter confesses to Jesus who it is that Jesus is. And in that statement, Jesus is receives from Peter. He hears Peter say back to him, he says, you are the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus does not correct 
or tell him that that's wrong. And there are other moments when there are people who come and offer worship to him as the son of God. He doesn't reject any of that. In fact, he stands in front of Pilate. Pilate tells him, you're accused of being the son of God. And he says, that's what they say. That's right. He doesn't reject any of those things. So Jesus accepted it, but the only time the only time that he explicitly says that he is the Son of God is right here. Let that soak in for just a second. Jesus had all kinds of opportunities in the Gospels. There were moments where the demons that he was casting out say, we know who you are and that you are the Son of God. And he tells them to be quiet. So why here? Why does he all of a sudden say it? I believe this. I believe this, that this statement of him being the Son of God is the revelation of his full character. It's the revelation of his full character. Now, character is something that's inside of us, right? I love, um, I always love looking at like Wikipedia and Wiktionary. We all know that they are great sources that you should use for all of your research, right? Not usually. But Wiktionary actually had a really great definition about this. It said this. It says, character is what a person is. Reputation is what he is supposed to be. Character is in himself and reputation is in the mind of others. You see, I think when Jesus was saying this, it was the revelation of the fullness of his character because our character starts with knowing who we are and it ends with knowing whose we are. That's where our character comes from. And I think that the two statements that followed Jesus revealing that he was the son of God, the fullness of his character, were there to support his character. Now, both of these statements, bronze and fire, would have been straight from Leviticus. They would have been warning bells. They would have been blaring horns that would have said, judgment is coming. These are judgment terms and judgment things. But in light of Jesus talking about his character, I think there are two other things that we should see about these items. Here's the first. His eyes like flames of fire reveal the source and standard of his character. His eyes like flames of fire reveal the source and standard of his character. You see, this is a very vivid word picture that describes something about who Jesus is. It describes the all-knowing, the all-seeing capacity that he has as the Son of God. Psalms 11 verse 4 says this. It says, His eyes see and his eyelids test the very children of men. Now, there's a lot more passages that we could look at that talk about the fact that his eyes see everything. But even later on in this same passage, 
Jesus said that all of the churches will know that I am he who searches both mind and heart. You see, his eyes had the ability to cut through and see the very motives of people's hearts. And thus they were both the source and the standard of his character. Here's the second thing. His feet, his feet being like burnished bronze, revealed the strength and the stability of his character. The strength and the stability of his character. You see, bronze is a product that only comes after the fire. It has to be put through an incredibly high temperature in order to burn away the impurities, in order for it to solidify, and it has a chemical reaction that takes place in order to make it. You see, Jesus shows by saying that he is, the, his feet are like burnished bronze. He's showing that he was tested and proved to be faithful. Jesus had already walked through the fiery, fiery trials of both life and death. And he overcame all of those victoriously and glorified. And just like burnished bronze, it gleams. When it's polished, it gleams like gold. But unlike gold, it's not soft. Instead, it's battle-hardened. I love that immediately following these character references about Jesus, that he's the Son of God, this full character of who he is, and these, these things that hold both the standard and the source, and that hope that he is steady and steadfast for us, that he then follows up with telling them, I know your works. I've seen them all already. And he says to them, he says, I know that your works, their, their love and faith and service and patient endurance. He gives four marks of great character about the church. And then he goes one step further and he says to them, he says, but here's what I love even more. He says, your character has grown. It's better now than it was at the very, very beginning when you started as a church. He's like, you are continuing on all of these things. And I, I've been reading a book as we've been going through all of this by Bill Heyer. And Bill Heyer had this to say when it came to these characteristics. He said the characteristics that Jesus commends are inward qualities of character. He said these qualities were manifested and demonstrated in their deeds because that which makes known the true character of a person is not simply what they profess but what they produce let me say that last part again that which makes known the true character of a person is not simply what we profess but it is what we produce a tree is known by its fruits. Man, what an incredible thing for Jesus to say to a church. First, he tells them, 
Here's my character in all of its fullness. You get to see it on full display. It's the only time I'm going to display it like this. And then he tells them, you as a church, you have a great character. You're doing great things. I love where you're headed and the trajectory that this is going on. And I want to continue to encourage you in that. But as soon as he does that, he says, but I still have something against you. I have this complaint. And I think that the complaint can be summed up by this statement. Bad company corrupts good character. You ever heard that before? Bad company corrupts good character. Jesus says this. He says, I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman. By the way, you should not just stop there talking to your wife. <laughs> That's a very bad idea. That loses all the cookies you might have had stored up. But he says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, last week, we saw two names of groups of teachings, right? We saw this group of people that were Balaam and Balak, and we saw this other group that were the Nicolaitans. And as we looked at them, we said they were a type, a typology. They weren't a specific group of people, but they pointed us in a direction and an idea about what was going on. And so as we come to this name, Jezebel, we need to see it also as another type. Jezebel was probably not a real person in the sense that there was a person inside of this church named Jezebel that Jesus had an issue against. See, Jezebel was from the Old Testament. She was a Phoenician princess. And she married a prince named Ahab. And together, they became king and queen of Israel. In fact, their story and the stories of them dominate almost an entire book of the Bible. The second half of 1 Kings all the way through the first half of 2 Kings, they are the king and the queen. And as queen, she brought with her idol worship. She brought with her the gods and the goddess from her land, Baal and Asherah. And she began to bring in prophets to help to build temples and worship to these two gods and goddesses. But that wasn't enough for her because she wanted to eradicate any other worship. And so she set out and began to kill all of the prophets of God. In fact, she killed over 400 of them. Over 400 of them. But she missed one. His name was Elijah. And there's an incredible showdown between Elijah and all of the prophets of Baal and Asherah. It happens on Mount Carmel. You can find it in 1 Kings chapter 18. Go read it this week with your kids. It's awesome. It has a showdown to the death inside of it. But Jezebel, Jezebel has long been labeled as 
one of the baddest of the bad. In fact, this week as I was doing some research, I ran across an article from BibleArchaeology.com. Right? I don't typically read a lot from BibleArchaeology.com, but they were, they were trying to cast a brand new light on who Jezebel was. And at the end of the article, they said, they said, in comparison to all of the other Bibles, bad girls. None of them hold a candlestick to who Jezebel was. They said there was not a single redeeming quality about who this woman was. Nothing that she did was good. In other words, she was the worst of the worst. <coughs> and as such, her name, her name became known with both idolatry and sexual immorality. And I believe more than anything that Jesus places his character in direct opposition with the character of Jezebel in this passage. And here it was. The greatest condemnation was that she was leading this idea. This idea that in order to have power over something, that you had to experience it first. In other words, if you want to know if something is bad, first you must go experience it, then you must master it. And once you have mastered it, it can no longer have something bad over you because you've mastered it. And so in doing such, she was saying, this person who was leading in the church, that you could do whatever it was that you wanted to do. And then first you need to taste it and see what it was that was going on. And then you need to continue to do it until you had mastered whatever it was and that you were in charge of it. And once you were in charge of it, it didn't matter anymore. You can continue to do it as much as you want. Now, I think you can see how that probably doesn't work out very well. Now, a lot of commentators, as we have come to this and come to this idea of Jezebel, have made out that this passage is specific, specifically talking about church discipline. Church discipline. Now, church discipline is the practice of removing those people that their character would be out of character with what God wanted. The things that they are doing and attempting to do inside of the church would not match up with where God wants the church to go. And then it becomes the duty of the church to remove that individual from his presence. Now, I do believe, I do believe that Jesus gives a template for church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. He talks about this idea about when there is sin, when there is friction between a brother, what it is that you are supposed to do. And if that doesn't work, that you are supposed to gather some more than one of you, two or three brothers, and go and confront him. And if he continues to be unrepentant, then you take it before the entire church. There is a pattern of church discipline that Jesus gives inside of and for the church. And I think that it is fair to say, it is fair to say that the body cannot tolerate any form of cancer. But I do not think this, 
I do not think that great church discipline makes a great church. I don't believe that great church discipline is what makes a great church. You say, Charles, how, how, can, how can you say that? Well, I want to look back at the passage for just a second. Jesus is upset at the church that they have what? That they tolerated her. They tolerated her. He's not upset that they didn't expel her. And you say, well, no way, I told that's what I feel like I see right there is the word tolerate. Well, listen, if for a moment you were to discover that there was cancer in your body, something was off with your body, the thing that none of us would do is take out a knife and begin to cut that section out. We wouldn't do that. We would go to a doctor and begin to seek help from a doctor, from a medical professional, from somebody who is very skilled at doing that. And it seems that what Jesus has against this church is they didn't seek anything out. They didn't go to anybody or anywhere or anything. Instead, they just kind of took a hands-off approach and said, it's okay. It'll all work itself out. We're just going to do our own thing over here. You know, tolerance is a word that's used a lot today. As Jesus followers, we're constantly asked to be tolerant of others. But at some point, at some point, I think we have to ask ourselves the question, is this something I can tolerate? Is this something that I can tolerate? What is it that I'm supposed to do? You know, I, I don't very often get into any sort of politics from up here. But I'm going to walk the line on that for just a moment. Because recently, there's been a question that's come up regarding two sets of rights. The rights of unborn babies versus the rights of women. And I have to be honest with you for a second. I cannot tolerate where it is that we're headed as a country in that conversation. I can't tolerate where we're headed on that. And so for me, it becomes, what am I supposed to do? If I can no longer tolerate this, if Jesus is against them because they are tolerating something that they're not supposed to tolerate, what in the world were they supposed to do? And here is what I think it is, is that is they were supposed to fervently get on their face and bring it before the Father and say, God, I don't have an ability to tolerate this any longer. Would you do something? Because he's the only one who can. I can scream out as much as I want to scream out. And it's not going to change anybody's opinion out there. I can tell them that they have to live out the same values and, and morals that I hold to. My Judeo-Christian-centric worldview that I have about everything. And you know what? The rest of the world is not going to play by those standards. 
It's not going to happen. I read a quote this morning from a guy on Twitter. He said, if God answered your prayers this week, he said, with more change in the world around you or just your world? God, there are things that we can't tolerate and we need to bring it before him and beseech him to intervene. So do I think that a church has to exercise church discipline? Probably. I don't think that Jesus would have given us a template for what church discipline looks like for us never to have to use it. I think it exists and is there as an application for something that could and at some point will happen inside of churches. But I don't think, I don't think that great character comes from exercising great church discipline. I think it comes from somewhere else entirely. Here's what I think. I believe that great character is determined by a great covenant. I believe that great character is determined by a great covenant. I used this word earlier in, in the service, and covenant is really just a very fancy word that means promise. Now, it's 1110, so I don't have nearly enough time to deal with this idea of what covenant is. And in just a moment, we're going to um, partake in a symbol of covenant with the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to see if I can help us all um, very quickly just get sort of a rudimentary understanding of covenant for a second. See, the Bible is made up primarily of two covenants. There's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament. By the way, the word testament also means promise or covenant. And in the Old Testament, there are a series of promises that are made between God and mankind. You have one that begins with Adam. You have that followed up with one with Noah. And then from there, we have another one with Abraham. And we see another one with David. And we see all of these promises between God and mankind. And here's what we see every time, is that mankind breaks the promise. We are totally unable. We have an inability to keep any end of our promises with God. Jezebel sits in this passage as a very stark reminder of our inability to keep any sort of promises with God. She stood for idolatry and immorality. The very first of the Mosaic Covenant was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second one, no graven images. Idolatry is all about elevating something and someone or something above God and worshiping it in his place. It's 
So Jezebel is that reminder that we are incapable of keeping God's promises. And as a result, we deserve the full weight of what that broken promise entails. God said as long as his people would keep his promises, his blessing would be poured out upon them. But the moment that they broke it, that the fullness of his wrath is what would come upon them. That they would be cursed. But Jesus, the Son of God, stepped in. And Jesus became the new covenant, the new promise. You see, because he was God's son, Jesus was capable of doing something that you and I were incapable of, and that was keeping all of the promises. And so Jesus kept them all. And he didn't deserve any of the curse, any of the wrath, but he took on the curse and the wrath when he died on the cross. He took on something that was totally designed for you and for me. And Jesus cried out. Sometimes I think we miss this, but he's hanging on the cross and he cries out in anguish he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the fullness of God's wrath and judgment was poured out on him. And the love and the connection that he had always had with the Father was separated. I want to back up from that moment for just a, a bit. 24 hours before that, the night before, Jesus did something incredibly special with his disciples. See, they had no idea what was gonna happen. They had no idea what the next 24 hours were going to unfold and take place. Even though, as we read it, we're like, I don't know how they didn't know because he kept telling them over and over again, but they didn't know what was about to happen. And Jesus says, well, I tell you what, read it with me. It starts in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. It says that Jesus took some bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it to them. And he said, this is my body, which I am giving up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, he took that cup after they had eaten. And he said, this cup, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, here's the difference between the two covenants. Covenant one was all about doing, covenant two was all about done. In the old covenant, it was all about us doing to be able to be in relationship with God. And covenant, the new covenant, Jesus says, I've already done it all for you so that you can be in relationship with God. Jesus had done it all so that we could live in relationship with him and pursue righteousness with him. 
And a church that understands that their character starts there and ends there, that's the church that will overcome. That's a church of great character. It's defined by and determined by that great covenant. I want to give you a final note. Because Jesus made an incredible promise to this church. He said that they would rule the nations and that they would do it with a rod of iron. And this is almost a, a, a direct quote from Psalms chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And this passage is, um, it's a messianic or a, a covenant psalm. But here's what I love. We started off and we said that Thyatira is, a, is an unassuming city. It's not the place that anybody would say that you would rule the nations from. It's undefendable. You could come from all directions and be able to attack the city. You could surround it. It was very easy to go through it. But Jesus says that he would give them all of the nations and that he would do it with an iron rod. Last week we, we heard about a different tool, the sword. And the iron rod stands in complete juxtaposition to the sword. The sword is all about authority and meaning. And, and instead, instead, the iron rod is a picture of innate strength. It's a picture of innate strength. And here's why I love that so much. The new covenant is not something that we can keep on our own. Even though Jesus already done it all for us, we still do not have the ability to keep the new covenant on our own. And because of that, Jesus sent a helper. <coughs> Jesus sent us the Holy Spirit to live inside of those who are his followers. And the Holy Spirit is there to correct us when we are wrong. And he draws us towards Jesus when we are prone to wander. <clears throat> he is our innate strength. And that is our character. 